So Galatians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. So Paul there writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent, his spirit, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So there you have it, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Uh, just to kind of recap where we are, uh, we are in that section of Galatians, chapters 3 and 4, where Paul is uh, presenting his case that we are justified by faith alone in Christ, not by works of the law. And he has, all throughout chapter 3, been showing the relationship between faith and works of the law, how one is justified through faith, uh, not through works of the law, and their relationship between the two. And last time, in verses 19 through 29, we asked the question, which because the text asks the question, why then the law? Because everything up from chapter 3, verse 1 to you know, verse 18 seems to be negative toward the law. It, it, you know, it serves... You know, you, it, it cannot justify you, it cannot uh, give you, it cannot make you a son of God, it cannot uh, guarantee the promise, it cannot do any of these things, it cannot make void the promise. So you might ask the question, well, why then do we have the law? Why did God give the law if it doesn't do any of these things that we think it should do? So Paul then uh, says, well... I'll tell you why the law. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law was given to show us our sin. And we looked at that last time. We looked at how um, the law has three uses. Uh, if, you, if you don't remember the fancy words of, of pedagogical and uh, civil and uh, normative, then you think of mirror, curb, and ruler. Okay, And he said here the, the law was given as a mirror to show you sin, what sin is. Because, if, again, if you remember, outside of the law being written on our hearts, and outside of maybe a commandment given here or there, there was no formal presentation of God's law. Okay, So up until then, you, know, you just had people kind of doing what they were going to do, following conscience, however that led them. And if you know, and of course, if you you know, when we get there in Genesis six, conscience doesn't lead them very well, does it? I mean, at at some point you get the whole world was continually evil all the time. But God gives His law to His people after He calls them out of slavery in Egypt. He gives them the law in order to show them what sin is. Now He says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But it's not. It, the law imprisons. The law does not give you the power to obey it. That's the point he's making. All the law can do is show you what sin is. It has no power to give you to complete it. It has no power to, to help you uh, fulfill it. All it does is it tells you this is what sin is. 
And then because we are fallen, and it has a kind of a perverse effect of inciting us to more and more sin. That's kind of what we, we, we read in Romans 7. But it's like, no, the law cannot give righteousness. It cannot give life. All it does is it imprisons everything under the law until the promise comes by faith. So then he says in verses 23-24, uh, before faith came, we were held captive. We were imprisoned. Uh, and the law was our guardian, our tutor, our schoolmaster, teaching us what sin is until Christ comes. And then you get that transition in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Everything that the law was intended to do was completed when Christ came. Not only did he fulfill the stipulations of the law in his life, but he was what the law was pointing to. The law says, this is what sin is, right? And I don't give you the power to combat sin or to give you life, but Jesus Christ does come and he does give you life through his own obedience. So that's kind of where we were at last time. And now as we head into this uh, chapter 4, he's going to continue his argument even more. Uh, but he's going to make this connection uh, between sons and heirs. Because if you look at verse 29, he ends that passage. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Then he picks up on that theme in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, and so on and so forth. So that's where we're going to go and we'll explore that connection a little bit more as we get on into that passage. But this morning, the, the thought I want to leave you with is that in the fullness of time, Christ has transformed us from slaves to sons and heirs. In the fullness of time, Christ has transformed us from slaves to sons and heirs. H-E-I-R-S, heirs. That's what we're going to see here in parts. So first, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, I'm calling it a human example uh, because it's very similar to what we saw earlier um, in verse 15 of chapter 3 to give a human example, brothers, where he talks about man-made covenants. Well, he's doing a similar thing here in verses 1 and 2 where he's giving an example of a child who has an inheritance but doesn't come into his inheritance yet because he's a child, <laughs> You know, you don't just give the keys to the kingdom to a child, uh, you know, in the sense of here's everything, you are now in control of everything. You, you put that child under guardians and stewards until he comes of age. That's the point he's going to make here. But he's, again, he's continuing to combat this uh, Judaizing position of you need to add works of the law to faith in order to be justified. And he's, again, he's going to show you that, that that's not how it works. That's not how it works here. And he's going to develop this idea of the heir, as we saw again in verse 29, uh, if you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, because he is the offspring that Paul talks about. He is Abraham's offspring. So if you are Christ, then he, since he is Abraham's offspring, you are Abraham's offspring because you are united to Christ. And if you are Abraham's offspring, then you now become an heir of the promise. The promise that was given to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And now that we are in Christ, we become heirs, inheritors of that promise. But again, showing this idea of the law and its purpose, he says, but an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. 
is no different from a slave. So he's giving another example. The heir, as long as he's a child, is really no different than a servant. He has, even though as, as we see here, now my translation says the owner of everything, really it should be the master of all. It's kurios, pantone, uh, the lord or master of all things. Uh, the heir has the inheritance, but he doesn't receive it yet. Why? Because he is a child. That word there, child, napios, it, it speaks of like an infant, uh, a minor, someone who is not yet of age, someone who has not yet ascended to the point where he can receive uh, the inheritance. So the heir, as long as he's a child, is really no different than a servant in the house. Even though he is master of all, he has not received that mastership yet, so he functions He's functionally like a slave in the house, like a servant in the house. I was trying to think of an example of this, and the, the first one that popped into my mind was the sound of music, okay? So you've got, uh, you know, um, what's her name? Julie Andrews, right? Julie Andrews. You know, so she comes in, and she is a governess for the Von Trapp children, right? And the children, well, I mean, they are, they are the children of Austrian nobility, Yet, here is this governess, she comes in, she is a steward, she is a teacher, and she has to teach and train the children. The children, even though they are the heirs, are not yet received their, their, their inheritance yet, and they have to listen to, to this governess. So she's, you know, even though she's not of the family yet, right, <laughs> she's not of the family yet, you know, she still has a position of authority over the children. Uh, another thing I, could, I thought of is in history, you have... Uh, you know, any number of times in the history of like the British monarchy, you have a child king, right? Um, and what happens? Well, oftentimes that, that child king is not elevated to the throne yet. They have someone who's like a, a like the queen mother or the, you know, the whatever, you know, someone who is in a position who's older will sort of occupy the throne until the child comes of, of age, uh, you see that even in, in the Bible when some of the kings of Israel or Judah, they're, they're children and, and you have a queen mother that will kind of sit on the throne. Of course, in, in the cases I've seen, the queen mother usually is not very good, but it doesn't matter. The point is she's there because the child is not yet able to ascend to the throne even though it is his. So you have this situation where Paul says, look, even in a human example, a child who is an heir is still no different than a slave, though he is the master of all. And it says in verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So until then, the heir is under what we, you know, guardians and, and managers. So uh, that word manager is oikonomos. It's a house steward, someone who, who is um, in charge of a household, a servant who is given charge over a household, to uh, watch the children and manage the affairs of the household. So he's like, so until then, the child is under these managers and guardians until the date set by his father, until that time appointed. That, that's the point he's trying to get here. It's like there's an appointed time set by the father that that child then will ascend to his inheritance. You know, again, it's no different than like any trust situation. If you have a child and, and someone dies and leaves an inheritance, you put that in a, into a trust, typically until that child turns 18 or 21 or whatever age you, you set the date. The date is set, and that child will receive the inheritance at that time. The point here, why I belabor this, 
is Paul is using an analogy here that most of us would understand, this idea of children, heirs, you know, under guardianship, under stewardship until they ascend. Uh, parents don't give their children the inheritance when they're children. As such, the child is effectively no different than a servant, but there will come a time when the child will come into his inheritance. Until then, he is under a guardian, under a steward, under someone who is um, watching over that child, if you will. And one of the things I think Paul is trying to get at here is because the law serves that function. The law serves that function as the guardian, as the manager, until the child comes of age. And, and what he's going to then eventually say is, because what the Judaizers are saying, they want you to live under the law, right? They want you to add works of law to faith in order to be justified. And Paul is saying, what you're doing is, if you're doing that, is you're going back, in a sense, to childhood. <laughs> it's like you want to go back and live under the time of guardians and managers, when a time when you were a child, a time when you were no different than a slave, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go back in time to a point where you are under a guardian, living, going back to the law? You don't want to do that. Because we're going to see, in verses 3 through 5, the time appointed by the Father has come. The time appointed by the Father has come. So verse 3, Paul now transitions uh, into how this applies to the overall point he's making in chapters 3 and 4, where he says, in the same way, or in the same manner. So just as I give in this example of a child heir who is uh, under guardians and managers and no different than a slave until the time appointed by his father, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now he uses, he includes himself here in this we, which means he could be referring to himself and fellow Jews, the Judaizing Christians, or he could also be referring to the Gentile Galatians as well. But he's saying, in the same manner, just as children under guardians and managers, when we were children, not like literal children, <laughs> metaphorically children, okay, when we were immature, when we were before the time of Christ, we were enslaved to what he calls here elementary principles. Now, it's an interesting uh, word there. Um, in Greek, the word is stoikeia. Um, and and, and the, the translation literally says, under the stoikeia of the world. And, and the, the word stoikeia, it's like a fundamental principle. It's like a basic, uh, the basic principles of something. Um, call it like the ABCs of something, the grammar, right? You know, you think of uh, when you're in grammar school, that's when you learn the basics, right? You're learning how to add, you're learning how to spell, how to, how to put sentences together. And then after a while, you get, you know, you move beyond the basics and then you start, you know, synthesizing ideas. You start learning and you start growing in your intelligence. Well, the basic fundamental principles... Paul is saying here, that's what we were enslaved to, the ABCs of things. Uh, the point is, is that when you're mature, you need, to, you need to move beyond the ABCs. You've got to go beyond the basic principles. Now, what are the basic principles? Well, for the Jews, that would be the Mosaic Law. 
the Mosaic Law, was their guardian. That's what they were enslaved to, if you will. That's what they were um, under while they were, quote-unquote, children during this time of guardianship, during this time of uh, the, the tutor, during this time of the, the schoolmaster. They were under the basic principles of the Mosaic Law. For the Galatians, it would have been probably whatever pagan worship they were, they were uh, under. But again, notice what, how Paul is describing the law here again. Right? In verse 23, he calls it a prison warden. Right? You were held captive, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. In verse 24, he refers to it as a guardian or a tutor or a teacher, a schoolmaster. In verse 2 of chapter 4, a, a steward. Um, you know, and now he's, like, he's, calling him, he's calling the law the, the ABCs of the faith, if you will, the ABCs of our understanding. Again, for the Jews, this would be the law. He uses this again in chapter 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? Again, that's that idea I've been trying to get across here. It's like the people who are trying to force the Galatians to accept works of the law as their righteousness, he's like, you are going backwards you're retreating, and you are enslaving yourself once more. Which is why in chapter 5, verse 1, it's it's not my, this is my theme verse of the book. I mean, I think chapter 2, verse 16 is probably a a better theme verse, but I like chapter 5, verse 1. It's my favorite verse in this book. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You know, and I like that because it reminds me of Braveheart. And I did my William Wallace impression once before. I'm not going to do it again. But in Braveheart, you know, you've got William Wallace who yells out freedom at the end of the movie. And, and that's what Christ is saying, or Paul is saying here. It's like, you have been set free from these things. Why would you then go back and enslave yourselves to them? Because if you're going to go and submit to the law, even though Christ has come, you are enslaving yourselves. You're, you're, you are no better than a slave during emancipation who says, thank you for freeing me. I'm going to go back and be a slave again. Thank you for freeing me. Very, you know, I'm very appreciative of that. But I'm going to live as a slave still because that's all I've ever known. So again here, Paul's saying you are enslaved. So that, that chapter 4, verse 9, he, he also references this idea of the stoicheia in Colossians. Uh, chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and verse 20, where he says in chapter 8, or sorry, cha- chapter 2, verse 8, there, there are not eight chapters in Colossians, okay. there's only four, I'm, I'm not adding to God's word, I do not want to be under that curse. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive that same language of slavery, you are being held captive by, now he's referring here to the elementary principles of the pagan world, philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the stoicheia, the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him 
the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, don't go to these empty things in the world because in Christ, He has the fullness of deity in bodily form. He contains, if you want to put it, you know, use that language, He contains all of Godness in a bodily form, in that incarnation. So why would you go to philosophy? Why would you go to uh, human tradition? Why would you go to the ABCs of the world? And again, in verse 20, now he's uh, referring to perhaps Jewish people here. If with Christ you've died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Again, these elementary principles. They serve a purpose, but once that purpose is served, you no longer need them. You've got to move beyond them. It would be like if you're an adult riding a bicycle with training wheels still on them. You might be thinking, well, you haven't seen me ride a bike. I still need the training wheels. <laughs> well, that's another thing. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5, he also refers to this here. Hebrews 5, someone actually asked me a question about this, but in Hebrews chapter 5, verse, well, let's say verse 11, he says there, about this, well, what's the this? Well, for that, you've got to go up and look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. And being made perfect, Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the argument that the author of Hebrews is making here, well, Jesus Christ is supreme. He's superior. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He's superior because he is a better high priest who mediates a better covenant and offers better sacrifices. That's the kind of the theme of what is driving the argument in Hebrews. And he says here, look, Jesus is a high priest, and he's better than the Levitical priesthood because his priesthood does not derive from that line of priests. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then the author's like, about this, verse 11, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. Okay. That's a way to sort of uh, endear yourself to your congregation because many believe this was a sermon that, that was preached. You are dull of hearing. <laughs> I'm not saying you are dull of hearing. I'm saying what the author of Hebrews says to his listeners, they are dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, the ABCs. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the author here is saying, look, you ought to, when I say that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, you should know what I mean when I say that. Problem is, you don't. Why? Because you're dull of hearing. Why? Because you're still on the basic principles. You're still feeding on milk. Right? So it would be as if you had a child who was, let's say, 9 or 10, and they're still being 
breastfed or bottle fed. You're like, you see that, you're like, what is wrong with this person? Right? It's either the child or the mother or both. It's like, no, that kid should be on solid food now. That kid should be eating meat. And he's still being fed milk. Same thing in the Christian life. We, you know, there are basics to the Christian faith, and they need to be taught, and they need to be uh, explained and perhaps taught many times. But we also need to move beyond the ABCs of the Christian faith and go to things that are meatier. Uh, solid food, if you will. So these elementary principles, you can go back to Galatians 4. Paul's saying these elementary principles, they were enslaved to these things. They were guarded. They were uh, encircled, surrounded by these things under guardianship. But then you get, again, in verse 4, which begins with my favorite word, but... But, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. That's a great verse. Okay, that's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. But when the fullness of time had come, the the pleroma, the the fullness, the overflowing, uh, in other words, when the right time had come, what time? Well, the time appointed by the Father, the date set by the Father, if you saw that at the end of verse 2, when that guardianship would be expired now. The time when the Son comes. That's the fullness of time. That is when everything was ripe. Right? You know, farmers, you know when it's harvest time, when the corn is ripe. There's no set date. You don't look at a calendar and, oh, it's September 13th. We need to start picking. It's whenever the corn looks ripe. You know it because you've done this so often. It is time to harvest. The same thing here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Again, look at the theology here that's just just sort of kind of packed into this verse. So first you have God who is sovereign over all things, knows when that special date is. It's a date set by him. So when Jesus came into the world, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't plan B. It was God's plan from very beginning to send his son. And that's just it there. He sent forth his son. This talks about the pre-existence uh, of the son of God. Uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth was born in time, but the son of God has always been pre-existent. The son of God has always been co-eternal with the father. John chapter 1 verse 1, the word in the beginning, the, you know, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. The, the Son was always there, and God sent Him forth. That word, therefore, sent forth is ex apostello. You get the word apostle out of that. An apostle is one who is sent, and Jesus is the apostle with a capital A and a capital apostle at the end of that. Right? He is the, the, the apostle par excellence, sent by the Father, born of a woman. There you've got the incarnation. He came into this world born in human flesh. The, the Son of God took to himself a human nature. Uh, the, the eternal word became flesh, as John says in chapter 1, verse 14, and dwelt among us. And he was born under the law. There you have that fact that he came under the law. He came, he, he came 
Just as the Jews were under the law, he came as under the law. He had to come under the law in order to fulfill the law. He had to be under the guardianship, under the yoke of the law in order to fulfill the law. So you got this, this, this great but in chapter 4, how in the fullness of time. And you, you think about that. You know, what, what, what do we mean when you, if you just look at history, when, when Paul says here the fullness of time, what's happening here? Well, first of all, you've got Greek as a language and, and, and this Hellenizing influence pretty much all throughout the region. Right? All throughout the Roman Empire, going into the Middle East, uh, Persia, all those areas have been, in a sense, Greekified, thanks to Alexander and his conquest through there, and the, the propagation of, of Greek language and Greek culture and Greek philosophy. You've got, so you've got this common language all throughout uh, the empire. You also have the Roman Empire at this time that provided roads to travel on, provided relative safety of travel, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, you've got all of this sort of messianic expectation that was, has been built up uh, in the Jewish people, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for the one who will deliver them. The fullness of time has come. God has sent forth his son. All of redemptive history was leading to this moment, this big moment in time. And you think about it. Paul has even kind of chronicled this a little bit, right? He says that the promise was given to Abram. Well, that's 2,000 years before the fullness of time, right? 2,000, give or take. Maybe 2,500. I'm trying to I forget the exact dates of Abram, but, you know, that's a long time. God promised that, right? Think of all the way back to the garden, however long that is. You know, and God promised to, to Adam and Eve that one would come, a seed would come. And then you've got what comes after that. Well, 430 years after the promise given to Abraham, you get the law. The guardian is set forth. The, the guardian is put in place to steward the child of the people of God until the fullness of time comes in Jesus. 2,000 years or 1,600 years later after uh, the, the giving of the law. So you've got all of this happening here. Jesus was born of woman. That fulfills prophecy. Many prophecies that, that talk about Jesus being born of the virgin, coming into time, uh, fulfills the promise of God, how he gave those promises. And again, being born under the law, he places our, himself under the same burden of his people. He identifies with his people by being born under the law. And then we see the dual purposes for which Jesus came into the world, right? So, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the Greek, you've got two, um, they're called hina clauses. Those are purpose clauses. And the two purposes there, the twin purposes of Jesus coming in the world are to redeem those who were born under the law and then to adopt and to receive, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he came to redeem, and he came to adopt. He came to redeem, he came to adopt. That word redeem uh, is marketplace language. Uh, it, you know, agorizo is what you, you know, you go to the market to buy things. Uh, to redeem is to buy back. We looked at this in our Easter sermon last Sunday. Uh, uh, Job was crying out for his redeemer, one who would, 
who would vindicate him, one who would sort of buy him out of his, his bondage. The same kind of idea here is redeem is to, to buy and redeem, to bring back something. It often is used to speak of buying out of slavery. You know, so you've got the slave markets and you buy a slave. In this case, he is buying us, if you will, by his precious blood in order to set us free and to adopt us, to bring us into the family of God. I was reading in a commentary, and I thought this was really good here, because they're talking about how some Christians, you know, I use the word Christian loosely in this case, don't like the blood atonement of Christ. It's offensive to them, right? And, you know, some people will look at it and say, well, that's child abuse. So they'll, they'll soft-pedal the atonement and say, well, you know, Jesus dying on the cross is an example. He, he, he does this so that we would do likewise. Or, or they focus more on the nativity. They, they focus more on Jesus coming as a child, humble into the world. So this commentary I was reading on this, I had this nice statement here. It says, God the Son was born of the virgin in order to die on the cross. He says, Christianity is not a religion of stable and straw, the nativity. It is a religion of thorn and nails, wood and blood. Jesus was born to die. That's, that's the Savior we believe in. That's the Redeemer we believe in. Jesus was born to die. He, and that death redeems us. And that death adopts us into his family. I mean, just these three verses here are so important for our understanding of redemptive history and our understanding of, of the gospel, really. We were enslaved to the law. Jesus came to redeem us from the law. We were slaves, and Jesus came to adopt us as sons. This is, this is pure gospel-y goodness here. Okay? Pure, you know, you know, it's just so rich with the gospel here in these, in these verses. This idea that Jesus came to redeem and to adopt, we are now sons. And that's what we see in verses 6 and 7. We are no longer slaves, but sons. And when I say sons, it doesn't exclude the ladies. What is it? Is it? Is that, church? Is, is, like, is that the big bad wolf outside huffing and puffing? <laughs> is it going to blow our house down? <laughs> well... We are made of brick, right? Not, not straw or wood. <laughs> He's going to have to huff and puff a lot. Uh, anyway, no longer sons, no longer slaves, but sons. And, and the idea of sons there is not meant to exclude women. It's just the idea that adoption was, you know, you, you know most often in that time of the world, you, you, if, you, if your natural children were unworthy to be heirs, you wanted to adopt a son to be the heir. So, uh, but we are all sons and daughters of God through adoption. So Paul concludes in verses 6 and 7 by affirming we are sons of God, where he says, and because you are sons, because we receive the adoption of sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And this is something Paul has been really kind of going through all throughout chapter 3, right? Chapter 3, verse 7. 
Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promises of the Spirit, the promised Spirit, I should say, through faith. And then what we looked at last week, uh, verses 25 through 29 of chapter 3, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul's been really hammering this point home. He's been emphasizing this idea that we are sons of God, that we are heirs, and it is not through the law, because the law could not do that. It is through Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, Christ who came in the fullness of time to redeem those, and that we might receive adoption. And the seal of our adoption is the very spirit of his Son sent in our hearts. Right? We, we teach that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul says in chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, we are temples of the Holy Spirit in whom the Spirit dwells. And here he says the Spirit of his Son is in our hearts. This is something that would not have been conceived of in the Old Testament. And Jesus even alludes to that in John chapter 7 when he talks about how... Um, out of our hearts will flow springs of living water. And then John adds a comment that he says, he said this of the Holy Spirit, uh, which would be, you know, hasn't been given yet because Jesus hasn't ascended yet. And we'll, we're going to be looking at that also in John's Gospel. He needs to ascend in order to send the Spirit. But now that he is here, now that Jesus is ascended, the Spirit of adoption comes into our hearts. And notice what the Spirit does here. He bears witness. He testifies. He testifies to us that we are sons. He speaks into our hearts. And notice it's not, it's crying, Abba, Father. It's not the Spirit is not there saying, you know, you are a child of God. Right? It's the Spirit saying, you are a child of God. You can call God Father. He is crying into your hearts. That's what that word there means. It even the Greek word even sounds like that. Kradzo, you know, ah, you know, you're yelling. The Spirit is shouting to you, you are ch God's child. Think about that. Think about that. Because what's the world telling you? You're a failure, right? What is Satan whispering into your heart? What have you done? Look at what you've done. Does God know what you're thinking right now? How could you be a child of God after you've just did that? God doesn't say that. That's Satan speaking to you. That's Satan trying to get you to doubt your effectiveness. The Spirit doesn't say, after Satan has been shouting temptations in your heart, the Spirit isn't there saying, you're still a child of God. You're still, no. He's saying, you are still a child of God. You get to call God Father. Abba, it's a term of endearment. He shouts, he does not whisper. And again, it's, a, it's an awesome privilege to call God Father. We, we, 
Again, I, I, I don't want to go past that too fast. Think about that, right? Because we often say that so, I don't want to say carelessly. We just say it kind of uh, as rote, right? You pray, Father in heaven, okay? Our Father, 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 yeah, so on and so forth. And then you get some of these kind of hip preachers, you know, they say, Daddy, praying to my Daddy, my Heavenly Daddy, or whatever. You know, it's like, you know, we say it like that. It's like, this is God, okay? This is the one who created everything, who spoke everything into existence. He is giving you the privilege to call him Father. Right? The Jews never thought of that to call God Father back in the Old Testament. They wouldn't even pronounce his name. Even now, I mean, I remember in, you know, in seminary taking Hebrew, you see the tetragrammaton in, in, the, in, the, in the text, Yahweh, we would pronounce it Adonai, because that's how the Jews would read it. When they came across God's name in the Bible, they did not say Yahweh, they said Adonai, which is Lord, Master. Right? When they were at the foot of Sinai, and God comes down on the top of Sinai and shakes the very mountain itself, the people aren't saying, Daddy, he's home. No, they're saying, you go, Moses. We'll, we'll be back here. You go up the mountain, and you bring God's word down to us. We'll just be here. I'm going to hide behind that rock over there. Um, that's how they thought of God. God says, you get to call me Father. You get to call me Father. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 8. In verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. I mean, this is right out of Galatians. Uh, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Isaiah chapter 44. This is in the comfort section of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah chapter 44, here the prophet says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land. In streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Here God is saying, I will pour my spirit like water on a thirsty land. And my people will call me by my name. Again, it's an awesome privilege. We are no longer slaves. We are sons and heirs through God. And the point Paul here is making in this passage is to show how the law in its role as guardian 
and steward. It is a temporary arrangement. The law was never meant to be a permanent fixture in the, the lives of the people of God. Jesus came and said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5. It was a temporary arrangement for God's people until Christ came. And now through Christ, who fulfilled the law, who kept it perfectly, we are now redeemed, we are adopted, we are no longer under the guardianship of the Mosaic law. But it's a failure in our parts to see the law as temporal and temporary. And that kind of leads us then to kind of slip into legalism, to to fall back into a lack of assurance, to sort of preach a sort of a, a fearful gospel. Like, if you don't do this, then maybe you're not saved. And it's, you know, to call people's faith into question. That is the quenching of the smoldering wick. That is the breaking of the bruised reed. You don't want to do that. And it's because we fail to see the law in its temporary nature. It's a backwards move, in a sense. Um, I was going to say something that just, just completely slipped my mind. Oh, well. I know it has something to do with what I'm going to preach in the sermon this morning, so maybe I'll remember it then, and I'll say, you remember what I said in Sunday school? <laughs> Now, all of, us are born under, <clears throat> all of us are born under the curse of the law, but we are redeemed and adopted through faith in Christ. Now I remember what I was going to say. Grace. Um, grace attacks this mentality of legalism. Okay? It, 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 it's, it, it's offensive to those who want to keep the law because grace basically says, you can't keep the law. You can't keep the law. And instead of rejoicing over that, our fallen nature says, no, 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 no. I have to do something. I must earn something. Grace says, no. It it, it completely shuts that down. It completely says, you cannot do this. So the law can never do for us what Christ has done for us, being born of woman, born of the law. And therefore, why go back to slavery? Why go back to immaturity? Why go back to childhood? Right? Why go back to the training wheels? Why go back to the ABCs? Christ's work served the dual purpose of redeeming us and adopting us. And now we have God as our Father, not as our judge. Right? That's what Paul says in Romans 8.1. Therefore, now, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. The judgment of guilty has been born, has been paid by the Son. He took God's wrath. Because of that, we are now free. <laughs> we are no longer condemned. We are no longer condemned. And now we're no longer slaves, but sons and heirs.